Welcome to our podcast, Murder, Mystery, and Mayhem, Laced with Morality, where all authors and experts are invited to share, learn, and together make this a better world where light pierces through the darkness with the spoken and written word. Well, I'm excited for my new author friend guest today. Um, His name is Gerald Everett Jones, um, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about him. I met him through his publicist, Lou, and you can share her more details about her um, if you'd like, Gerald. But Gerald lives in Santa Monica, and he's a member of the Dramatist Guild and Women's National Book Association, as well as a board member of the Independent Writers of Southern California. He's a film independent fellow, and he holds a Bachelor of Arts with honors from the College of Letters, Wesleyan University, where he studied under novelist Peter Poynton. Um, who wrote Stone Island, F.D. Reed, the author of The Red Machines, and I uh, hope I get this right, Yerzy Kowinski, The Painted Bird being there. Did I get that right? Yerzy Kaczynski, Yerzy yes, Kaczynski. The Painted Bird uh, and uh, Being There is probably mm-hmm. his most famous, uh, made into a movie there with Peter Sellers. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Gerald. I'm really happy that you're here. Thank you, Catherine. I'm delighted mm-hmm. to be with you. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about your author community. Um, clearly, you had some greats who, who led you on your author journey. Um, but are there any other authors that you're friends with? And how do they help you become a better writer? Well, uh, I have been a board member of Independent Writers of Southern California for a number of years. And mm-hmm. I certainly have made a, a number of very dear friends and colleagues. Uh, among them, I have a circle of friends that I consider my beta readers, and we, we do exchange our intermediate drafts, try to catch each other on logic gaps and those kinds of things. And among mm-hmm. those is um, Marvin J. Wolf, who is the author of the Rabbi Ben Mystery Series, and that might sound somewhat similar. Yeah. <laughs> Father <laughs> Father Brown, Rabbi Ben, and, and Preacher <laughs> Evan Wycliffe. But um, Marvin uh, is, is perhaps... Uh, more, I've done 14 novels and any just a huge number of business and technical books, but mm. I believe Marvin has more titles than I do. Um, oh, wow! And um, uh, but he was a combat photographer in Vietnam, he was a working journalist, a, a crime reporter. He's written true crime, he's written memoirs of, of world leaders. He's he's a very uh, astute uh, critic, and um, I do love him to death, but also, uh, John Rachel, who is a, a, an American expat who lives in Japan, oh. and uh, he he wrote Blinders Keepers. He wrote The Man Who Loved Too Much, uh, and he has written in, in multiple genres. But I will say, when I thought about your question, really, the one that I would point to that I have gained the most from is John le Carre, uh, alias you know David Cornwell, and. When he writes his spy thrillers, he refers to spies as close observers. <laughs> and when you begin to think about it, you realize, well, I'm a reader. I'm a close observer. He's giving me all this rich detail. And, you know, there's going to be a clue buried in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but I might not find out until later. And I really think that Le Carre taught me to read between the lines. Mm-hmm. And 
I feel that's so valuable. And, and another author that I really admire, Ann Tyler, you know, you could say Lucari's my father, Ann Tyler's my mother. Um, <laughs> Ann Tyler, you know, they often have talked about her books being from an angel's eye view, meaning that there, there are characters who are bad actors, but they're not villainous. Mm -hmm. they're, you, we, you can at some point see into their soul uh, in her stories. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go so far as to say an Ann Tyler book is a cozy. I mean, that's certainly a literary agent kind of word. You know, mm -hmm. you, you think of kittens on the cover, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, her, her books are, are deep and insightful. They're, they're, many of them are family sagas, mm -hmm. but she doesn't really, she might point the finger, but then she's also going to show you the other side of it. So I, I have been, definitely enriched by i i i believe i've read all, all of her books i've certainly read all of lacare's books hmm. and um yes those those are the two authors that i admire the most although with preacher stalls the second coming which is this fourth one in the mystery series it is a very complex plot and i really benefited from sending it out for a beta read uh from from half a dozen folks who gave me some, they said, well, you know, this chapter is actually out of order. <laughs> it's, oh, I better correct the arcs because, um, you know, we don't want people getting that wrong. That's it. So, so for you, um, describe the last couple of books as you, it's, it's a series, it's the last couple of books and they have very interesting premises. We have end times, we have, um, a take on, on things that have actually happened, the, the premises are quite terrifying because they're so realistic. Well, my main character, Preacher Evan Wycliffe, is a curious mind, and some might call him agnostic. Others might call him a faith healer. I mean, it's a small town, so he he has to live with all kinds of labels. But People bring him problems that nobody else has any interest in solving. So he's he's what you would call a reluctant investigator. He's an amateur sleuth. Uh, fortunately for me, I'm not writing police procedurals, so Evan doesn't need to understand quite <laughs> investigative technique or criminology. Uh -huh. But uh, I have him having gone away to divinity school. He studied at Harvard Divinity when he thought he was going to return home and become a minister. Oh. And he learned as much about Christian, the history of the Christian church and, you know, little minor details like the Inquisition, uh, the sale of indulgences and all these kinds of things, the Crusades, and decided, well, you know, I'm not really <laughs> invested in that. Yeah, And so he dropped out of divinity school and he enrolls in MIT in astrophysics and thinks, okay, well, maybe I can find some answers there. Well, wrong. <laughs> not, not, not that there aren't plausible things there, but uh, he also was discouraged in love at that particular point as a graduate student. Mm -hmm. And so he returns home to Southern Missouri where really there are very few jobs to be found even these days. Um, mm. That is just north of the Lake of the Ozarks. It used to be prolific family farms. Now corporate farming has really taken over. Uh, and there, it, it even gr growing an acre of corn is not profitable for almost anyone anymore. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so it turns out strawberries, <laughs> $30,000 profit an acre. Uh, if you can manage it to, you know, keep the, the weevils off of them. But yeah. uh, he goes back there and he gets a job as a guest preacher. So he gets, you know, 
fifty hundred bucks every time somebody you know can't uh, fulfill the pulpit. Then also uh, he he knows how to use a laptop and he's kind of a data driller, so he becomes a uh, skip tracer. So mm-hmm. he tracks he can track down people who defaulted on their loans for the local car dealer. And the thing about Evan is he's got the kind of personality that he's not really going after the repo. He's really kind of going after the win-win. Yeah. And so he finds out, finds out, well, go, go, go repo that Mustang. Well, actually it turns out she just got mustered out of the military and it was the boyfriend's car and she had to co-sign the car's not even there anymore. And she doesn't have transportation. Well, Evan drove a loner out there. It's kind of a beat up car. Nobody else wanted. And he says, well, would you drive this? Could you afford $50 a month? She said, sure. <laughs> so Evan gets a lift home and, you know, car dealers got a deal that he wasn't smart enough to make. So that's really, that's really the engine of, um, of these books is mm-hmm. why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Again, the, the things that really we don't have answers to. Right. Yeah. Huh. But um, uh, this last one has to do with, um, number one, it turned out that one of the things that set this off in my mind was there actually was a U.S. government plot years and years ago to mm-hmm. fake the second coming of Christ. And it's huh. in the Church Commission report. They were going to park a submarine off. The, they, they weren't ambitious enough to think they could convince the world. They, all they wanted to do was they, was um, scare the Cuban uh, population into like bringing down Fidel Castro. So they were going to... Uh, fire off stuff from a submarine off the coast of Cuba, you know, bullhorns and whatever. And they were yeah. going to convince people that Fidel was the Antichrist. Well, this was a plot about the same time that they were going to try to use explode, exploding cigars on the guy. You know, th- this went nowhere, but it turned out, and it was only after I w- wanted to use this plot point that I found out that there is still an active conspiracy theory that NASA and the deep state is going to try this. And, you know, I mean, as nuts as it sounds. Uh, so I have an unscrupulous uh, televangelist, uh, uh, someone who's <laughs> something of a cult leader and a, and a manipulator. I've never heard is, of that. Never heard of is, that before. Well, but again, it's, it's not it's it's not the it, it's not a, it's not the spoof you know, HBO series where we're making fun of it. It's, it's, you know, this is, this is serious stuff because, you know, we've got, we've got politicians talking about internment camps, which I never thought I would ever hear of uh, in the United States. Certainly you read about it during the, during World War II, but, Mm -hmm. but we've got this guy luring homeless people and disadvantaged people to a, what he calls a retreat to a, a, a huge farm in rural Missouri. And, you know, there is, post-COVID and people without jobs and their starvation. It's like, you know, okay, he's, he's luring them there with promises of food, mm-hmm. but then he's, he's, he's exhorting them to fast and ultimately to starve because, you know, he gets a few hundred people there. He realizes he can't feed them all. Mm. And, the, uh, and the thing that was really chilling is there isn't a single politician in the state of Missouri that's complaining that the homeless people are disappearing. Mm. So you've got, and you know, and plus this guy is, you know, if, if they're going to come to his farm to the extent that they have a vehicle or they might have a little bit of land or they have an old house or whatever, he tells them, sign it over to me. I'm going to take care of you. Well, I mean, this, it's not like, 
this isn't done in assisted living homes all over the country. It's like, you know, sign sign this, whatever you have over to us, because we'll take care of you till the end of your days. All right. That's not, that's not an unusual or an illegal promise. Mm-hmm. And preaching the end times, preaching the apocalypse, preaching um, what are you going to do to prepare for the end is also not illegal in and of itself. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. there have, you know, uh, I'm sure once or twice Billy Graham might, might have mentioned it, okay? Mm-hmm. But when you have what may amount to malicious intent mm-hmm. and you've got these kinds of social forces, the other thing that can, that got to me also chilling in putting this together was I knew that this had happened elsewhere in the world. I knew that, 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 uh, that there were situations like this, but you know, a lot of it had been in emerging nations where there wasn't much communication. So if you had a big rural area, people might disappear and you may, maybe they might not have been missed. And, but I thought, well, if you put this in modern America, mm-hmm. how would that work? You know, you've got drones flying over everything. You've got Google mapping, you know, every square inch of the planet. You know, what? how do you lose track of hundreds of people? Well, it turns out you've got the engine of social media and you've got, even if you had evidence coming out that, that there were bodies being dug up from this place, you've got social media saying, oh, no. That's all fake video. Those are those. Are, there aren't there aren't bodies in those body bags. Mm-hmm. This is just this is just you know this is covering up the fact that they're doing organ theft or they're eating babies or I mean again you, <laughs> in in the in what we would call the post truth world mm-hmm. you've got you can't sort the disinformation from the real stuff. It's even even if you're an intelligent reader of the news, mm-hmm. and one of the classic ways that intelligence agencies all over the world cloud their misdeeds, their so-called false flag operations is you, they, they know you can't keep anything secret now. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. But what you can do is float 20 ver- different versions of the story. Some of which are so crazy. The Martians did this or <laughs> they're, there, there are flying saucers coming out of the Bermuda Triangle, or our children are being abducted, and so that their organs can be used, or whatever, whatever happens to be. I mean, and who knows? I mean, again, some some people might call them aliens, other people might call them angels. Maybe we're just talking about differences in terminology. Mm-hmm. But but one of the things that keeps people from the what we would call the hard truth or the facts is that all you have to do is dis- begin to discuss the true story and the bad actors will point to the wacko story and say, that's just one of those. Hmm. That's just one of those nutsy conspiracy theories. There was, as I say, there was this na- there's this rumored NASA plot. It's in a book and it's in a popular book, Behold the Pale Horse, reduced released in the mid nineties by some French conspiracy theorist. And it's, you know, it goes along with chemtrails and some of these other things that have been debated. And, you know, I mean, I know enough of science that, you know, if a jet is passing through a a part of the sky, that's got a lot of dust, it's going to leave, it's going to leave a trail of vapor that's visible. Mm -hmm. If it's 
if it's above the dust and there's and there's not much moisture up there, it might not leave any kind of a trail at all. So I don't really need, you know, I can use Occam's razor. I don't really, I don't yeah. really need that theory to say that we're being, you know, sprayed with you know, pesticides and those kinds of things. That's it. But those are great premises to write books on, you know, just, just the fact that we're living in times where we can't even agree on the facts. We can't even agree yes. on truth. What is truth? What what are facts? Like we're disputing facts. <laughs> we're disputing. Well, and you know, it was interesting real? that that during the, during the time I think what was it? It was an, a few years ago, and it was during one of the campaigns, and the the term alternative facts was it's a lie, which just mean that I, that blew my mind. Well, um, but the thing is, let's let's rephrase that. How about alternative? sets of facts. There can be alternative sets of facts. The exclusion of, of an essential fact from a story is as much of a lie as, as any, anything else. And yet, the, the essential facts might not be excluded deliberately. The ex essential facts might be excluded because simply the investigation hasn't covered, uncovered them yet. This mm. could be an innocent mistake. You know, you, you're investigating a crime. People want to know the answer right away. What was the motive? Why did mm. that happen? Well, actually, we haven't interviewed everybody involved with the perpetrator. We haven't, the, the perpetrator isn't talking or the perpetrator is lying or the perpetrator has got, give, has, gives us a different story every time we talk to him. We might not have all the facts yet. It might be years before the facts come out. And one of the things that strikes me, I did another book that had to do with wrongful death, uh, uh, accused wrong, but wrongful death by um, a, a couple of policemen. And I had to learn about the, the coroner's inquest process. And I began to realize, I had not understood this before, a coroner's inquest, which can happen very soon after the incident, because the trials take a long time. Trials take discovery and this assignment of attorneys and all kinds of uh, investigation. But a coroner's inquest is usually, if it's conducted, it's conducted rather promptly after the fact. But the problem is, for the public, for the news-consuming public, the problem is a coroner can only make one of two decisions. A coroner, a coroner can only say this person died of natural causes or this person died at the hands of another. The coroner cannot say, even if there's strong evidence who that another was, the mm -hmm. coroner cannot say that, should not say that, because that is for an entirely different proceeding. That is for criminal charges. That is for a court trial. That is entirely different. Mm -hmm. So what has happened often, very often, in wrongful death cases where the coroner gets involved because it is in the interest of the presumed perpetrators, the coroner will tend to rule that it was death by natural causes. Mm -hmm. And the most frequent natural cause cited is this person died of a heart attack from being taken into pretty, he resisted arrest and he mm -hmm. died of a heart attack from being taken into custody. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult to argue against. Mm -hmm. Because a great number of people have arteriosclerosis, 
<laughs> you know, they've been they've been they've been eating uh, uh, unhealthy diets for a lot of years. There's there's reasons they might suffer from coronary infarction, but that's not that's not um, that doesn't reduce the uh, liability of the uh, uh, the billy club being applied. You know, the pressure being applied to their neck and cutting off the blood flow to their brain. Exactly. Which often which often does not produce a bruise, mm -hmm. especially on a dark skinned person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So all of these things create distrust between people and, and it's, it looks like your books really capitalize on conspiracy theories, us disputing facts, us disputing the truth, um, but shifting gears a little bit, um, <laughs> <laughs> shifting gears. Uh, in terms of marketing these books, what what have you found to be the best way to market your your work? Well, I have been a self-published author with my own publishing imprint ever since my book agent, who was big in the field of nonfiction books, said, "Have a nice life, kid." Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, I've I've done a lot of um, I've done a lot of marketing in 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 various ways. Okay. One of the things that works now while I sleep is that if you focus on I care about the size of my audience more than I care about the size of my wallet. Mm -hmm. I think especially when you think of yourself as breaking in, that's a good focus to have. Um, one of the things that I found post COVID is that it used to be that, um, that paperbacks were 75% of the market and printing costs have shot way up, especially print on demand printing costs have shot way up. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, if a paperback is more than 20 bucks, mm -hmm. certainly if it's more than 30 bucks, that's going to you know, paperbacks of best-selling authors will sell. And uh, that's because people trust that source. Mm -hmm. But if you, um, is that my my fellow? But people will experiment with eBooks. People will try new authors with eBooks. Mm -hmm. And so what I have, I've got two series. I have one series of three romantic comedies that are kind of silly satires what mm -hmm. used to be called skirt chasing stories. Mm -hmm. um, now they're rom-coms. Yeah, a young man trying mm -hmm. to get, you know, trying mm -hmm. to get the girl. Uh, I've got that series of three, and then I've got this series of four mysteries. Now, I've got quite a few. I've got literary fiction. I've got historical fiction, but they're, they don't fall into series. But okay. one of the things that I've found, and um, this is a tricky one, but I have found that making the first book in the series free, after a while, not a day goes by, but that, but that, just excuse me one more. Sure. We just have to let that complainer out of the room. <laughs> so what I found is, you know, and I did, I did Amazon advertising, Facebook advertising, I did, you know, Google AdWords advertising. Um, and with that kind of effort, I can tell you, you can spend a buck to make a buck. Mm -hmm. So, but spending a buck to make two bucks is a really cute trick. Yeah. <laughs> Other people might know how to do it, but I haven't really discovered the magic. So I will say that building readership, you know, I 
estimate I've got a readership of at least 30, 40,000 uh, readers. That's amazing. Uh, but I've been, but I've been at this for, I've been at fiction for at least 15 years. Mm -hmm. So um, now, um, but I will say you, also, yeah, go how ahead. How do you gauge your followers? How do you gauge it? Do you have that many people reading your books? Amazon will give you lifetime set, uh, sales at a click. Uh, okay. And they will also list it by title if you want to sort that way. Mm -hmm. I have one business book that sells, has always sold without any advertising because it got adopted at universities very early. And that, that's a book oh, okay. called How to Lie with Charts. Now, so oh. if, you're, if your congressman is lying to you, it might be my fault. They they do teach that book, at, or they used to teach the book at Georgetown. I don't know, still still do. Oh. I know I had an inquiry the other day from State University of New York, um, Empire State, and you know they want they um, they had a um, they had a challenge student who needed who needed the ebook. Was it for? Vocal narration. See, I don't, I don't have a, a audiobook of that okay. one. Okay. So mm. I think maybe they wanted to put it into an AI program that would read it to them. Mm. Uh, but, but they wanted the. He, they, he had bought the print copy and he wanted a uh, electronic copy. So I was able to. So, so, but that told me. I mean, otherwise, I can do a, I can do a search of, 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 of syllabus, and mm. I can, I can tell that it's, that it's on the supplemental reading list of, of some mm. places. So. So yeah, I, that book has been um, uh, quite successful, and and interestingly enough, it sells in paperback and even in hardcover because textbooks, that's people want to write notes in their books, and they want to yeah. they want to then sell them as used books, and mm -hmm. all that's true of that that market is quite different from mm -hmm. you know the um, you know if there's a fiction book. And I buy it in paper. If I feel I'm not going to reread it, I'm going to walk down the street to the, you know, to the the house that has the little library in front. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to let a neighbor make off with it. Yeah. So that happens. So, so how many hours a day do you end up writing? To, I'm assuming you're writing full time now, or no? I have written full time most of my freelance career, and okay. I. I, I have been freelance off and on for many years at a time. Uh, I was involved in computer graphics back when there were, it took rooms full of <laughs> computers <laughs> to produce um, business graphics. And then I got involved in IT. I, I was executive business manager for a while, but I, I had also, during that time, I had ghostwritten a number of college textbooks in computer science. So I had... Mm that background that was actually how I got that agent uh that I had stuck with and he was the he got involved with you know the the dummies guides the idiots guides the, oh. the chicken soup stuff yeah. I mean, you know that they had really huge bestseller series yeah um so so yeah I had good representation in in nonfiction, and I did a lot of those those books back then mm -hmm. um but I I now that I'm not a teenager anymore i can put in about four hours five five hours of work before i need you know need lunch okay. or a nap so <laughs> after at, and then i'm best in the morning and okay. so i will almost always write in the mornings and i do i do i do paid editorial and and i mean actually i ghost wrote an entire uh book uh 
a year ago. It was um, it was a book about um, life in a fe federal prison. It was a mystery set oh. in a federal prison by somebody oh. who really knew it from the inside. And okay. I learned a lot more than I wanted to about <laughs> you know what goes on, yeah, uh, in those environments. So it's fascinating. I ghostwriting. It's interesting because it does give you the ability to put on another hat, one that you probably wouldn't have taken on yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I studied acting in college and I, you know, I, I did summer stock. I, I was, I went to an all male school back when there were such things and I got mm -hmm. loaned out to girls schools to be, you know, male roles and all those kinds of things. And I actually, I mean, I was serious for a while about being an actor and I auditioned at Juilliard. I didn't get in. And oh. it, I, I, you know, why didn't I apply other places? I, I can't give you an answer, but mm. I did, it did occur to me as I was foundering around for, you know, what's going to be my first job out of college. I thought to myself, well, you know, even if I was a successful actor, I kind of have to wait for the parts to come to me. <laughs> you know, I, I have to read that script and go, yeah, I, yeah, that, yeah, I can find that in myself. I, you know, and, and it's one of the reasons I think actors are some of the most compassionate persons on the planet because they kind of understand anybody can do anything. Hmm. Anybody's capable of anything. You know, yeah. well, if Joaquin Phoenix can be the Joker, <laughs> you know, he, he he's a vegan and a animal activist. I don't think that's his personality. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, but I, but I began to realize if I was a writer, I could play all the parts. <laughs> I was going to ask you, do you feel like your your background in acting helped you to write? Oh, very much. And, yeah. and I really do feel, you know, and there's such a contrast in the difference between writing a business technical book uh, and writing fiction is my my very the very first novel that I did was an adaptation of a screenplay I'd done of, of one of the romantic comedies. Hmm. And so the screenplay was in effect an outline. Uh, you realize how much more meat you have to put on the bone. But, yeah. but when I wrote business books, when I, and I wrote those for mainstream publishers, I had to submit an outline with my proposal. And then an editor was assigned to me. And if I departed from out, out, the outline, I had to give a good reason or I got my wrist slapped. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it was, it was one or two chapters a week. It was a specific schedule. I'm writing to an outline. And it's like, it was, I didn't have to worry about what I'm going to write tomorrow. But when I wrote fiction, as I got into it, and it took it took me a few books to begin to trust this, yeah. is that if you can begin with a notion and a blank page, it's amazing where your subconscious mind will take you. And you know, so I've heard writers talk about, well, I clothe my 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 characters, and then I put them on stage, and then they they go where they want and they say what they want, and that really is. That really is true. I mean, especially if you've got a, a series going. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, and, and of course, also a really important point in a series is that your main character has to have an arc, not only through the book, but also over the course of the series. They have to be, and you know, one of the things that Evan Wycliffe is not an exemplary human being. He has a problem with drinking. He has a problem with Oxycontin because of his back. He is a doubter on many days. Uh, and he, you know, he has trouble maintaining his own personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is a flawed character, but mm -hmm. that is also something that some, that, that many people can say, yeah, I've been there. 
<laughs> and, and you know, and and it's interesting to see. You know, I, this last book of all the three I put in the first person because I really wanted to get inside his head and see how he reacted to some of the horrific things that he encountered. But then one of the things that made the plot complex was I had to find a way to tell things that he was not aware of, things that were happening. And so I had to give myself and the reader permission to break into another subplot line or line of subplots where we we break voice and we actually, in third person, we do discover the background of that particular person, why they might have made the decisions to do what they did. Hmm. So that made the plot a lot, very complex in terms of the sequence, because you didn't, you don't want to really say, well, four years ago, this last Sunday, this is what happened, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or you don't, you don't want them looking at television and, and, and hearing a news story or, you know, those kinds of cheap tricks. Audience is more sophisticated than that these days. Mm -hmm. And you, yeah. you see that in, in foreign films a lot too. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I like to kind of go where the spirit leads, if you will, um, in a mystery. And I think if I surprise myself, I can surprise readers. And I think that that's part of the delight. That's part of the delight of, of fiction. So are you a, so I'm guessing you're a pantser versus a plotter. Especially with fiction. Yes. And, and it can be scary to do that. Mm -hmm. And, and yet it's amazing how many times it works, but you, I mean, I knew a, a, a screenwriter, actually the fellow that, um, invented MacGyver. I, I, I had a, um, a mentorship with him at one point, And he was saying when he was starting out, he didn't have an office, but he would go to the Santa Monica public library and would sit with his yellow pad. But the problem was every time he stared at the blank yellow pad, he couldn't do anything. Mm. And so he found that what he could do is if he asked himself a question and then he walked around the library, he just wandered around the library that somehow when he sat back down, he'd have the answer. Well, the other thing he learned that was that he had to have a technique for having a destination like, okay, I'm going to go over and I'm going to, I'm going to browse in history. <laughs> you had to, he had to look like he knew what he was looking for. Otherwise he'd get kicked out of the library, you know, yeah. for, for being, you know, an idler and a time waster. <laughs> oh, wow. But, well, what about book reviews? Do you read your book reviews? And if you do, how do you deal with the good or bad ones? I read them and I find most of them to be reason. I, I can't help but read them. I yeah. find most of them to be reasoned. I find most of them coming from people who they may have a prejudice. They may have a, they, there may have been something that raised their hackles, whatever. I find the reviews that upset me and there haven't been that many, but okay. it's just like getting an insult. The reason you're angry is you're afraid it's true of yourself. Ah. And so what you have to do is kind of diffuse from that. And I think the the review that upset me the most was that the reviewer said, oh, well, this novelist really needs to learn to show rather than talk. Hmm. And that's advice that they give screenwriters. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, of course, you have to show. but. A novelist has to have all the tools at their disposal. You, 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 yes, okay. Pulp 
fiction that is basically written to to just go right to the screen, if you will. Thoughtfulness is not necessarily what that audience wants. They want mm-hmm. action. They want they want eye candy, if you will. Um, but I mean, I remember I I I stood up at a writer's event, and it was um, it was one of the famous writers. It was it was Michael Tolkien, okay. uh, whose 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 father uh, Mel Tolkien was you know, famous famous comic uh, uh, writer. But Michael has written both award-winning movies uh, the player mm-hmm. i believe is one and also novels and mm-hmm. i opened my big fat mouth and i said michael you know <laughs> sh- shouldn't you learn to show rather than telling he just looked at me like you idiot <laughs> 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 i mean i didn't even get an answer it's like sit back down well that was that was an incredible opportunity it looks like you've had many of those um well how long does it usually take you to write a book oh my Catherine, i <laughs> Anywhere from uh, six weeks to 20 years. Oh, my gosh. I I wrote a historical novel, Bonfire of the Vanderbilts, and I was standing at Los Angeles County Museum of Art, and there is a painting on the wall, 10 feet wide, huge painting, 21 people in this painting, Victorian Mm -hmm. era painting called The Baptism. And the, the, the museum card on the wall said, this painting may have been a branch of the Vanderbilt family, but nobody knows for sure. Oh. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Hasn't anybody ever looked into that? Mm-hmm. And so I did. And I thought, eh, you know, there's, there's bound to be a white paper on this. Somebody must have written their th- thesis on it in art school. So, you know, I dug into it. And of course, this is this is some time ago. This is when I actually had to go to libraries and order microfilm and you know, I was communicating with scholars by fax. <laughs> and yeah. We did have email, but it was blue screen back then. And um, so that that took some time. Mm-hmm. And I I made friends of, uh, it turns out that um, for some reason in the Episcopal Church, a lot of the priests are, they're like genealogists and historians. They're like, the, mm. oh, wow, <laughs> this is the most intriguing question anybody's asked me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I got a lot of help from um from from Episcopal Episcopal scholars, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think you know, they're they're very serious archivists as well. Uh, I found, and so, um, but I I I found that there was a feud between Cornelius Vanderbilt II and J.P. Morgan, and they mm-hmm. were both on the. Well, J.P. Morgan was on the Episcopal Committee for Revising the Liturgy. Wow. And about the time this painting was about to go to the World's Fair in Chicago. And the painting is of a baptism. It's obviously a christening Mm -hmm. in a private parlor. Everybody thought that it must be Catholic and European because the painter had signed Paris, 1892. Hmm. But no, all you have to do is look. Those are Episcopal robes. It's absolutely unequivocal, okay? Mm. And mm. if those are Episcopal robes, the Vanderbilts, the, the ones that had that many children, if you start doing the math, they were Americans. They weren't, they weren't Parisians. They never lived in Paris. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where could that have been? Well, it turned out that their mansion in Newport had burned down. So there was no 
evidence of the of that particular private parlor but the but the thing was that during the that time morgan was on the committee that actually forbade baptisms in private homes hmm. so cornelius vanderbilt who wanted to be more <laughs> episcopal yeah than jp morgan <laughs> didn't want the public embarrassment of this being oh. a painting that he had commissioned for his daughter's birth. And the the painting's not hanging right now because the uh, LACMA's being rebuilt. And uh, so it's in storage right now, but I have urged them to conduct some forensic analysis on the painting because there's an inscription on the back that's been crossed out. It's, it's really quite an intriguing, but it took me, Easily, I mean, I, I was doing it off and on, and I had, when I started it, I, ha, I had a day job, as it were. And so, yes, it was kind of a hobby of mine. I was, and I was writing other things at the time, too. Mm. But uh, I, then, I then published after, you know, the, I, I gave presentations to museum docents. They were fascinated. That was back when the painting was still hanging. But, you know, the curator was like, yeah, it's fiction after all. What does he know? He doesn't have yeah. an art degree. <laughs> and so... Um, then I took my research and I put it into a white paper. Oh. And I I published the entire white paper was published in the Journal of Art Crime, which is a very prestigious article. So yeah. um, then uh then I public also published the scholars edition of the book, which is a, har a hardcover edition that's got the novel and it's got the white paper published in the back. So that was kind of thumbing my nose at um at, at the art world and uh you know 100 years from now maybe they'll teach it in school we'll see what happens who knows you your <laughs> books have won a, a lot of awards though uh i in in fact the book the nonfiction book you talked about that's picked up at universities it's as it won the um eric hoffer award yes, it did. in 2020 yes it and did. um I, I mean the list of awards it is just incredible what what do you what stands out to you as your fame your favorite um, award well it's that one's easy to answer because most of the awards that i've entered are specifically for indie publishers and and small presses mm -hmm. and if you're if you're published by a mainstream publisher typically your publisher submits you mm -hmm. so for example you can't be cons you can't be considered for a pulitzer unless penguin submits your book Right. Okay, that kind of thing. But the the award that has been most gratifying to me, and I have actually won it multiple times for different books, is the New York City Big Book Award, which accepts yeah. submissions from mainstream publishers and from self-published. Mm -hmm. And in the category of mystery, I actually had two of the books in the Preacher series that were eligible in the same year. And yeah. so those actually, those books won gold, and silver, respectively, that yeah. year. So I can I can say that was the that was the top that was the top of mystery that year. Yeah, preacher finds a finds a corpse <laughs> that that won qu quite a few awards as well. Why do you think that's that's so? And so did preacher raises the dead. It's well, preacher raises the dead is about near death experience mm -hmm. and and uh, people rising up from coma and mm -hmm. and. Um, and that was that was a lot of that that actually there were some reviewers that actually categorized that as a medical thriller because really? I had to do so okay. I had to do and see at that time I've got Evan, you know, he'd been a part time 
preacher. He'd been a guest preacher, but he didn't really have ambition to become a pastor. It was, mm -hmm. that was just like too much. And I have the, his mentor, the pastor of the, of the uh, First Baptist Church, deciding he wants to retire and saying, Evan, you know, somebody's got to do this. You've got to step in. And that's, it was also the beginning of COVID. Wow. So he finds that he suddenly has to visit the sick and the dying. He's got to conduct weddings and funerals. And so then, uh, the, then the complication in that plot is his, his new wife gets struck down and she's in a coma. Hmm. And so what does he do as, as, as pastor? What, what can he do that he would advise himself? To, what kind of comfort can he give to not only himself, but to, you know, the members of his immediate family? And what can he expect? Does he, does he really believe God is a micromanager and he can, he can pray for, for some, for somebody's resuscitation and, what is the definition of God's will in this situation? Mm -hmm. okay, again, why did what she she was a good person? She was head of the Loving Embrace Committee. She was arranging hot <laughs> meals for for seniors. What what caused her to be struck down? Yeah, you know, it was an auto accident with only her in the car. Wow. Mm. So uh, this, you know, and and he one of the things he decides is, and no, none of the medical practitioners gave him this advice, and they said, well, you know, she might. She might not ever wake up. And so we're going to have to decide at some point. And there are laws about, you know, again, what, there's advanced directives, but there are also laws about when you take the feeding tubes out and when you might mm -hmm. take a breathing tube out. And he, one of the things he decides to do, he says, you know something? Not only is I, am I going to set her aside, but I'm not going to take a bath. Mm. I'm going to go there in the smelliest T-shirt I can find. Mm. Maybe that way she'll know I'm there. Because, you know, she doesn't open her eyes. And, you know, m maybe she can feel the touch of my hand. Maybe she can't. But at least maybe she'll know it's me. Hmm. <laughs> wow. And tell us a little bit about Kenyon, is it Sundowner? Uh, Harry Harambe's Kenyon Sundowner is a is literary fiction, and it's something of a fictionalized, it reads like a fictionalized memoir. But... Um, my wife and I lived in Kenya for two years as she was doing uh, child welfare and elephant um, conservation, environmental environmental education, and um, in, in a uh, institution for unwed mothers. And so it was a literacy program, you know, that, that she would she would show them um, um, a, a YouTube movie about uh, sea life, you know, tur turtle migration. There was, a, there was actually turtles hatching on that beach and they had to be protected, but mm -hmm. she'd show them that. And then, you know, if you, if, if they were, if, if they had schooling in, in writing, they had to write, you know, a, a page about it. If they couldn't, they'd have to write a picture about it. Mm -hmm. So basically it's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like teaching English as a second language, um, even though that's the official language. So we were there for a couple of years and, um, Things got rather interesting there uh, politically. That is, a, that is a basically a, a corrupt political environment in some ways. But mm -hmm. you know, we came back here and things were just as <laughs> just, <laughs> just as interesting, just as nuts. So I mean, careful what you, well, that was right before COVID that we came back. Uh, oh but wow! I did see number number one as as somebody who takes in the news here in this country on a daily basis, and I see. Um, 
white on black conflict and vice versa and and that con that controversy of racism when I was going to Kenya, I just assumed I was going to see a mirror image of the same thing mm -hmm. My experience was very different if you are a you're white European or American, and you're showing up in East Africa. Everybody's thrilled to see you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're either a tourist there to spend money, and you're you're going to you're going to experience some of the best <laughs> some of the best uh, uh, restaurants and and um, uh, service that you've ever imagined. Uh, with chefs trained with with Kenyan chefs that were trained in India, who <laughs> mm. made vegan food. Um, yeah. Uh, but also, you could be a business person. Mm -hmm. Are you there to start a new company? Are you there to invest? I mean, Kenya is going to be the Silicon Valley of Africa. I I have mm -hmm. no uh, doubt. And you know, Meg Whitman's the ambassador there. Mm -hmm. Used to be head of HP. I mean, obviously, the yeah. American government thinks the same thing. Yeah. So I, what I did see that surprised me was, I mean, I was aware of trafficking, mm -hmm. and you know, especially in places like Thailand and. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you have to figure, okay, some of that must go on. But the thing that I saw was, and especially we were in the, we, we ended up living in a resort town on the Indian Ocean. Okay. And so those are luxury resorts and there's, those are, those got a lot of like Europeans coming and maybe spending yeah. lengths of time there. And also people tend to go there between safaris because uh, mm -hmm. the safaris are inland, but they want to, you know, they want to, you know, hang out. And, uh, and, and of course, the, um, the winters in Europe are the summers there. Right. Because <laughs> it's south of the equator, so it's attractive. But I saw what you would amount, what basically amounted to interracial dating. It wasn't, you know, I would see a, a, an older fellow and a younger woman, but they would be walking down the street, and and he was holding her her child's hand, and 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 he'd been there for a month, and it turns out he comes back every year. Hmm. Okay, so I mean, swiping left and right in this country uh, with setups and whatever, uh, how is this? Yes, of course. Yes, he's he's probably buying her meals. He might be paying her rent. He he might or might not have a family back home. He, he didn't ask. But then again, there was the time uh, more than once that I saw the middle aged woman and and the young man. Oh, he's my driver. Oh, he's my bodyguard. Well, yeah, but I didn't see you necking in the pool at midnight last night. So I mean, and but it also turns out she comes back every year this is like oh. well wait a minute this is it's hard to wag the finger at 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 people finding value in each other's lives mm -hmm. okay so yes there's privation there yes there's a huge separation of classes but you know now you find it everywhere you go and so mm -hmm. this is one of the reasons i said that when i came back to this country i saw things more with kenyan eyes I, you know, I, 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 and the other thing that you find in, in, in Kenya, and it's true in, in other African countries is there's 43 different tribes in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, they're at each other's throats, at least economically. And there's only three tribes, only three prominent families that have ever ruled the country. Mm -hmm. 
So there's unfairness built into that. And yeah. if you're a if you're a Kenyan and you happen to be lucky enough to go to law school in South Africa, mm -hmm. maybe you're on scholarship, whatever, there are South African nightclubs you're not going to get into because you're not South African. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've got the wrong accent. You've the South Africans know the Kenyans and the Kenyans know the South Africans. <laughs> but never mind the fact that they both love gospel music. South mm -hmm. African gospel music is hugely popular in Kenya. Yeah. yeah. Which is which was surprising to me. And I I I just assumed also that Kenya was going to be since since inland it's predominantly Christian, twenty percent Muslim. Where we lived it was more like eighty percent Muslim, but and but people are living very much in harmony. But I just assumed that the Christians that I met were going to be either Anglican, English, uh, English heritage, or Catholic, uh, you know, uh, German, French her heritage. Pentecostalism is huge in Kenya, mm -hmm. and the the influence of over the decades, over the uh, practically a century of American missionaries, you've got. You've got Kenyans that are just very much out of that tradition. And mm -hmm. I, since I was brought up a Southern Baptist, you know, the thing that really astounded me was I never, Kenyans were just spontaneously generous people, mm -hmm. especially to people in, in, in their families who they support financially every way they possibly can. Mm -hmm. but, but one of the things that really struck me was as much as I understood that, there was not a single Kenyan who ever walked up to me and said, do you know Jesus Christ is your personal savior, Mr. White Man? <laughs> it just, it was, talk about walking your talk. Mm -hmm. these, these are people who, and you didn't really know, maybe, maybe among themselves or among their community, they would know who had money or who hadn't, but the thing that you quickly learn is there was an appetite for what you might call tricksterism or gaming, <laughs> which often happened with members of their own, own family. You know, mm. I loan you money. Okay, well, you don't pay it back. You're going to find your tires flat. <laughs> mm. Okay. I mean, it's just, but it was just like a national sport. It, it was, mm. it, it, you know, it was a very different culture. Hmm. And uh, and refreshing in a way. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, that corruption on the surface, yeah. Uh, as much as they were trying to go digital, everything required paperwork, and the paperwork always requires a rubber stamp, official mm -hmm. rubber stamp. Okay, but the, the there's a fee for the stamp, but there's also an accommodation for the fellow who possesses the stamp. So, yeah, you kind of learn to live with that on a daily basis. But that book, Harry Harambi, is, a, is about a widower from Los Angeles who goes there thinking he's going to, he's kind of a couch potato and, you know, but the tour guide says, you know, I'm going to show you a good time. So he's expecting you're going to try to hook him up and they're going to have a lot of drinking and carrying on and partying. Well, of course, he meets another middle-aged woman who's got, she's a widow and she's got kids and it's like, he's got to decide Am I a tourist or am I a citizen? Hmm. Yeah. Well, it just seems like you have so much experience in so many, um, so many aspects of traveling, living in other countries that I can, I can only imagine how incredible that makes your books. 
And um, I lived I in can... France as a student during, when they were trying to burn it down. That dates me somewhat. Oh, but, wow. Uh, when we travel in France, my, my wife uh, lets me do the talking in French, which is they, they don't think of me as French. They think of me as maybe Belgian or maybe English because an American can't speak French. But she's fluent in Italian because she studied there for years. And so I keep my mouth shut. Her Italian is so good, they think they're, she's from some other part of Italy. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yes, we've had, we've had some interesting, interesting yeah. tours. Trips. Well, well, I can't believe that we're at the end of our time, and I, I would love to um, make sure that our listeners get connected with you. Can you share the best way to connect with you? Oh, absolutely. That's GeraldEverettJones.com. Gerald with a G, Everett with two Ts. And yes, I used to be Gerald Jones, but I, I used to be Jerry Jones, but I don't own the Dallas Cowboys, so don't even, you know, begin. But yeah, I, I had to use the middle name as well, Gerald Everett Jones, uh, not only because it's my forebearer who was in World War One, but also because there's just a few other Gerald Joneses who are authors. <laughs> so yes, Google Gerald Everett Jones, and you'll most of those hits are likely to be me, uh, GeraldEverettJones.com. But also, I'm on Substack, uh, Gerald dot sub. GeraldEverettJones.substack.com. And yes, I have a regular blog that I push out a couple times a week. And I have, um, uh, I, I often have offers, um, book offers for my, I have about 7,000 followers there. And so um, that, that's fun because I often review books by other authors that I, that have affected me and that I feel as though are by kindred spirits or, you know, people, you know, Take a look at this. I found it fascinating. That would be fun. Just give give it to them short and sweet, and they'll go or not. If they don't want free books, stay away. Oh, okay. I'll I'll let uh, Luann know because she's tracking all that. You know, we've we've had a long relationship. I think she's been pitching and booking me for at least six years, five six years. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's. She's a sweetheart. We have yet to meet, but you know she's in Atlanta. What what are you going to, Catherine? You've been very generous. Thank you so much. So long.